Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. It's episode four this week and as we head into a wintry Christmas period, I'm really excited to present this wonderful conversation with Emma Lawton from More Human. Emma and I have a great conversation about disabilities as superpowers, and Emma and I both acquired our disabilities, so that's a common thread that we chat about. But in any case, I hope you enjoy it and look forward to next week. We're really thrilled to have Emma Lawton on the show from More Human, but Emma, I was wondering if I could just kindly ask you to kick things off by giving us a brief introduction to yourself and, and your work. Sure, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know where to start. <laughs> um, so I'm Emma. Uh... I guess I'll kind of start with the bit that kind of makes me different. So I was diagnosed with Parkinson's about seven years ago when I was 29. Um, And I kind of treat that as my superpower. It's the thing that kind of makes me a bit different and makes me kind of have a unique insight into life, which uh, that's why I start with it. I know you're not supposed to start with the disability. You're supposed to put the person first, but uh, (laughs) it's always interesting, I think. But uh, yeah, so I used to be a creative director, uh, kind of worked for years with charities and people like that, kind of. Uh, doing web design, branding, all sorts of fun things, uh, until I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, which kind of threw me totally into a bit of a spanner in the works. Um, but since then, I've learned a lot about accessibility and become a bit of a kind of an accessibility and inclusive design champion. Uh, and then uh, last year, I set up, or well, started this year, I set up More Human, which is basically, at the moment, we're creating a platform to help communities put on events and charge for them, uh, with a view to trying to alleviate things like social isolation and loneliness in kind of older people. Um, and yeah, it's just that's kind of a me in a potted history of, of who I am. But uh, yeah, I live in London, and uh, I like design. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, that's super good. So thanks so much for giving us a brief, um, you know, insight to the various things that you're involved in. Uh, yeah, I think you know you raised it just before Emma that obviously uh, you have uh, Parkinson's, and you know that um, presumably has changed a few things since you know before you were mm-hmm. diagnosed. Um, and I think it is really important that we, you know, we sort of start to just break down yeah. um, the norms around like how we talk about disability. So, you know, I use a wheelchair, I get asked a lot, you know, what happened, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think a lot of the time people are just very afraid that, you know, if you talk about disability, you will offend or upset or, you know, cause trauma. Um, and it means that a lot of time people never ask, they never inquire and they never learn. And that's, I think, a broader problem. So if you're happy to, um, would love to just hear about some of your, I guess, like, you know, experiences, um, uh, particularly the last seven years and how, you know, your um, interaction with disability, uh, how that's been, sort of how that's shaped how you think. Like you mentioned now, obviously, um, you treated as a superpower, how you sort of came to that um, yeah. position. 
would love to thank you yeah um i think the interesting thing was before uh, before this all kind of happened before i was diagnosed i was working as a designer and very much not into inclusivity not into sort of accessibility thought it was the kind of bit of a swear word for a designer that actually was the the thing that happened when i went to the client and said i've done your design it looks beautiful and they say oh, you need to think about accessibility you need to think about this and it was always making typefaces bigger making things look ugly and it, it kind of it was always kind of the bugbear for me and then when i was diagnosed it became kind of screamingly obvious that actually there was all these things out there people were kind of struggling to just kind of use basic things and to get around and you know actually there's a lot of provisions not made for people with disabilities and i think it's getting better but actually there's still challenges and i was one of the people that was fighting against it at that point in time i was kind of as a designer definitely battling against the accessibility that was supposed to be built into what i was doing because it didn't look nice and so yeah i think um quite narcissistic but actually i kind of then discovered that actually accessibility was really important and it became kind of part of my life through that really but i think the biggest challenge is someone with, with the kind of disability is yeah what you kind of saying before when people kind of are scared to scared to ask you and i'd rather people ask i kind of always quite impressed with children the way that they kind of will just ask questions and actually say you know what's wrong with your neck i had a, a problem with my neck for about three years now and it's uh it's, my neck muscles have dropped and no one's really sure why it's happened or how it's happened but children will ask that question and actually that's i don't mind i don't mind if anyone ever asks me it's actually the kind of the looks that people give you where they don't say something that actually hurt more i think at the time. yeah yeah, definitely. I think that's a really important point that like, well, one, I think um, we were talking with Cameron Malik from Disability Rights UK um, recently. Uh, and, you know, he made the point that like kids often similarly ask him, you know, why is that, you know, why are you in a wheelchair, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and a lot of the time parents sort of respond like, oh, don't ask, you know, the, the, like, don't yeah. ask that man. He's just, it's, yeah. Um, and he just made a really good point that, you know, the kids don't, the kids don't care. Like the kids aren't oh, like... There's no judgment, there's no value associated with mm. it. it. Yeah, and it's the parents who often kind yeah. of impose that value on their kids and say, like, you know, that's a bad thing or don't ask that. And it's it's actually really refreshing, I think, to see the kids' kind of oh, curiosity and also then acceptance when you explain. And they're just like, oh, cool, whatever. And they just move a, on. A really interesting example of that was um, I was once stood outside my house and this woman pushed a pushchair past and the kid was really staring at me. And um, I had my neck brace on and the mum said, don't stare, don't stare. And the kid went pink hair pink hair and if you're just looking at my hair you know, it's like she would she'd notice the neck brace she'd seen it but she kind of and my, my little nephew will always tilt his head when he sees me so that he can see my face i mean he's tiny he's like just turned one but he's sussed already that you know to see my face he needs to tilt his head and just does it and it's i think kids have got it right they're kind of they're, you know they're just open and you know they don't care and i think i wish more people were like that because i'd rather someone feels like they've stuck their foot in it and ask a question that's embarrassing than, than not learn. Yeah, 100%. I think that's great. And I think that's a good that's a good model that kids have it right. <laughs> we mm. should start to... Kids have it right with everything. <laughs> yeah, we should start to learn, I think, from, from, the, from the little ones. Um, and Emma, I guess to, to your point of before, of like not really, you know, pre-diagnosis, really ever thinking about accessibility mm. or I guess, you know, disabled people in a sort of, in a kind of really concerted sense. Mm. Um, uh, sort of two questions for you like one how does that inform you know how you interact with non-disabled people today like I think you know as someone who's acquired a disability I notice there's a distinction I think between people who are born with disabilities mm. and people who are, acquire them as yeah. to how they interact with you know non-disabled people yeah. and, and I guess like more more specifically the kind of the lack of understanding mm. around disability what are your kind of thoughts on that 
I think it may be I may be more kind of gentle on people because actually I know I've come from the same place. I kind of know how I used to feel about it. And I'm, I'm always very aware that every time I tell someone that I was diagnosed when I was 29 that I have Parkinson's, they kind of almost need to have that moment where they get over it and they kind of get to, I mean, they're literally having to catch up with seven years of my getting used to it. So actually I can't expect them immediately to say the right thing or to do the right thing or to act the right way because actually you know, how would they know yeah, what to yeah. say in that moment? Because actually it's taken me <laughs> seven years to perfect it. So I can't expect them in like two minutes yeah. of knowing me, but you have to almost kind of give people that, that moment in time or that bit of, bit of moment to kind of just almost come to terms mm -hmm. with themselves. I think it's, it's maybe a bit kinder on people than I would be perhaps if I hadn't been, you know, through that myself. But I think I think there's a lot, a lot to be learned from kind of how people respond yeah. to you. I mean, I, I get quite stubborn. I was at a restaurant the other day and the woman came over to me, she said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, what for? You know, if you've not got any cider yeah. left or something, you know, I kind of assume she's doing my dinner, but it was my neck. And I said, oh no, God, it's fine. I've had it three years, but just her response to it made me feel quite awkward because actually she, but then yeah. I thought, well, she, she doesn't know. She probably thinks I've been in a car accident or something, you know, she's probably concerned for me. So you have to kind of almost not judge people too quickly on the way they initially respond. I think. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really important point and it's much more productive, I think, way to look at things because, you know, there's plenty of stuff that you just never think about because it never impacts your life and it doesn't mean you don't care or that you don't want to learn. I think a lot of the time in the disabled community, there's a tendency to be pretty, you know, pretty um, forthright and righteous about the kind of lack of understanding and, and, and just I think generally that runs across the sort of minority groups that there is a sense of, you know, um, you should know about this. And I think Practically, we just need to realise there's so many different things about lived experience and the human, you know, condition that we can't expect everybody to know everything, but we can, we should expect them to, you know, to be open to learning about it and wanting yeah. to. And I think um, that's really important. It's an opportunity, isn't it, really? You can see it as an opportunity to basically educate someone in a nice way and sort of, a, and I think I feel very much because I've got a bit of a platform and kind of get my opportunities to tell my story and things like that. I have to feel, I often feel like I kind of have a real real kind of service to do to people with Parkinson's that actually needs to tell the story right. I think that always feels to be really important because if I'm up there kind of doing a speech or something for people and about Parkinson's, I'm kind of, I feel a little bit like I've become a bit of a spokeswoman in that sense. And actually I have to be really careful what I say. You know, I can't, I feel incredibly positive about my situation, but not everyone feels like that. So how do I kind of do it justice that it actually tells people enough about Parkinson's they can go away and learn more, but without imposing too much of my sort of, slant on it if that makes sense because actually if I'm the only person they ever meet with Parkinson's I don't think I'm typical so um you know I don't want them to kind of think oh Parkinson's is easy because Emma says so you know it's kind of it needs to kind of be representative and fair when I'm talking about it so yeah yeah definitely I think there's a really important point about like how we you know can destigmatize assistance and like this idea that like you know, you can live a really happy and healthy oh, yeah. and, you know, engaged life and just occasionally need help with extra things or that sort of mm. stuff. But it doesn't make you, you know, weaker or, or less no. capable. Um, and a lot of the narrative around disability is often like that because you need help, you therefore, you know, are lesser. I think also calling yourself disabled for the first time is really difficult. And I think it actually normally ends up being when you're applying for something that you actually finally when you need money for something or you want to get help or support that's when you actually kind of go okay I'm actually disabled now because I do actually need support and and I think I, I maybe kind of take off the disability badge and wear it sometimes when I feel like I need it which feels a bit cheeky but actually I, most of the time I don't ask for help but if I do need help then I will take it but um I, I kind of I try, I try not to use the word disabled I try to use kind of you know differently abled or 
like pairs or things like that because I think actually it gives me so much more that it takes away in that yeah. sense it actually swings and roundabouts isn't it really I guess yeah and maybe if you're happy just to talk a bit about that about like the superpower element uh, you mentioned before and the perspective it's given you what's some of the kind of changes you've noticed it's weird. I mean, I think before I was diagnosed, I never really felt like I was a kind of small minded person or anyone that, you know, wasn't the kind of person that said no to things all the time. But I definitely, since I've been diagnosed, I've developed a slightly more cavalier attitude to the things I do. You know, I kind of will take on more, I do more, I kind of throw myself out of my comfort zone a lot more. And I think it's actually made me a person that I feel proud of to be, to be honest. It's kind of shown me who I can really be, which sounds really cheesy, but I just think, um, I just think it's, it's actually, I much prefer the person I am now and I think you know just from the sense that actually if I'm I feel like I know a lot more because of that I feel like I've learned so much more and actually because of that it does feel like a superpower it does feel like I've got unique insights that other people don't have or just on the world even I feel like I look at things differently yeah can you maybe give us a couple of examples of like you know what some of those things that you've noticed are different like in terms of your perspective or even to some of the lessons I think probably the fact that I don't sweat the small stuff so much. I'm actually kind of a lot more kind of, um, I don't really kind of get so hurt off about stuff. And I, I don't, I used to really kind of get stressed about stuff. I didn't, if I didn't know what was going to happen with something, I'd get really stressed about it. Whereas now I tend to be, unless it's a big thing, I tend to be much more chilled about it until I know what I'm dealing with. You know, I kind of won't stress until I know what I have to stress. And I think that's, that's definitely quite important. And just, I don't second guess myself so much. I kind of think, well, actually, if I'm dealing with Parkinson's, and I'm doing okay at that. I might be okay at other stuff. I might just try some other things. So it's kind of maybe got a bit of like a what's the worst that can happen sort of attitude to stuff. And I think also it's made me realise that actually my connections are stronger with people as well because I'm showing my sort of weakness. I'm showing my my kind of vulnerability straight away. They often show me theirs and then I make better, stronger connections with people in business and also personally much quicker. Yeah. I mean, oh, that that's super helpful. Um, I think those, I think these are all really important things or elements of disability or living, you know, with a disability that aren't, you know, in the mainstream. People only ever hear about the problems or the pain or things like that, which you know definitely exist. But they also d- exist for non-disabled people too. Um, but this idea, I think, of like perspective shifts and you know resilience um, and you know better connections, I think are all you know one very consistent things so i meet from lot i hear from lots of disabled people i meet but two things that we just need to start putting out there as like really fundamental parts of disability and you know we speak a lot about like you know disabled innovation and like the kind of creative problem solving capacity of of disabled people because literally every day they have to figure out workarounds to things that um they hadn't planned exactly, yeah, definitely. Um, I think awesome. as well the thing that I find really interesting is the fact that I'm kind of a big advocate of like bringing your whole self to a situation so always being yourself wherever you are and I think work especially I very much kind of believe that you should be yourself at work and you should you know if you're upset at work be upset at work and I think having Parkinson's has meant that I can't hide that you know if my foot's cramping or you know I can't walk you know everyone knows about it and I, I don't care I actually don't mind I love the fact they know my vulnerabilities and they don't take advantage of them and I think you know, it really depends on your workplace as to whether that's something you feel you can do. I've got friends with Parkinson's that don't feel they can do that. But I feel like I've always worked places that have kind of accepted it and not taken advantage of it. So it's been okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, it kind of, kind of means I just can't really hide or pretend to be anything I'm not because it's all there for you to see sort of thing. Yeah, so. yeah which is liberating, I think, in, in many ways. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, yes. Awesome. Thanks so much, Emma. I think that was, you know, really helpful, particularly, I guess, for a lot of people who, who aren't disabled, but who also perhaps you know, um, haven't really kind of 
been able to, to, to fit, put themselves in someone else's shoes, a really useful kind of mm. um, exploration of some of the, of some of the really, you know, positive, I think, elements of disability. Um, I'd love to delve into a bit more, I guess, your journey, you know, from a professional point of view. So um, you mentioned before you were diagnosed, you were already a creative. Um, I was wondering if you can give me a bit of an insight into the stuff that you were, the work that you were doing and, and the kind of projects that you, you know, were, were focused on. Um, and then give us a bit of an insight into like how that's changed, if at all, and, and what sort of creative work you do now, if mm-hmm. it's um, distinct. Sure, yeah. So basically, uh, before I was diagnosed, I was kind of working for an agency. So um, I was working mainly on uh, kind of charity clients, uh, education clients, so kind of people that really, you know, were at the forefront of kind of accessibility at that point in time. So that I kind of learned a lot through that. But actually, it was mainly sort of kind of business to business type stuff. Um, I learned kind of a lot about the industry through that Um was working for an agency that perhaps didn't give me the support that I needed at that time when I was diagnosed. That was quite difficult. Um, kind of had a bit of a problem with the guy that owned the company kind of put me in an awkward situation a number of times where I couldn't actually do my, my job properly because of low Parkinson's um, and he kind of called me up on it and it was it was a real challenge at that time so I was kind of I left there feeling quite quite you know like uh, thinking that Parkinson's was going to be a problem with my career and, and things like that and then I was actually part of a BBC documentary called The Big Life Fix which um, Microsoft a uh, lady from Microsoft called Hyann created a watch for me that vibrated into my wrist cool. and allowed me to write and draw for the first time in years and um, it kind of opened my career up and opened my life up again because suddenly I was um I had all this kind of publicity about me a lot of press and I you know the video went viral and it sort of it made me not only realise that I could do whatever I wanted to do with yeah. the power of technology supporting me, um, you know, actually doors would open for me and it, it kind of made me realise that actually my future was whatever I wanted it to be. So I then sort of started working in um, in kind of doing my own freelance stuff and then mm-hmm. went to work for Parkinson's UK. Um, yeah. It seems like an obvious choice, but actually I've got yeah. inside the knowledge, so why not? <laughs> and then uh, basically left... Uh, I still work there sort of a day a week, but I left kind of mainly to go and build my own business uh, cool. September last year. So I've been on a business builder program, building building my company. So amazing! I can take my neck brace off because it's stopping me talking. I once wore a neck brace for quite a long time, so I can appreciate the <laughs> <laughs> so warm as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the hassle of braces. Awesome. I mean, that's that's super cool, and I think. Um, really exciting I guess also that like you know something like that documentary really yeah, kind just, of presented you with a bunch of opportunities yeah. and, and you were sort of you know supported and welcomed mm. to post that um, into the yeah it really just I mean also just how supportive the Parkinson's community were because I think you know it's very easy for if there's someone that's kind of doing a lot of stuff but there's be jealousy or kind of um you know you know I'd be jealous mm. of someone if they had that kind of platform but they were incredibly supportive and yeah. really sort of realized that I could elevate Parkinson's to a kind of a, a national level and get people talking about it and so actually kind of from that I ended yeah. up started I started doing stand-up comedy I started doing all sorts of things because actually it made me realize you know there was a people wanted to know about this stuff and perhaps in a different way from the way I'd been doing it. so yeah. I do a lot of kind of after dinner speaking and conference speaking and things like that and I thought why not comedy why give it a go <laughs> so uh, yeah awesome. and you know just on a quick point like what what do you like what is your kind of favorite part of your job like obviously your your you know your career i guess is so multifaceted you know an entrepreneur and uh, a writer and a speaker and you know a stand up comedian and a generally artistic creative what what would you sort of say is your like 
if you had to pick one, you're kind of like passion, the one that you really, you really see yourself. I mean, as. being an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, I can't speak, I can say it, entrepreneur is um, incredible. Like it's terrifying at the moment. I mean, it's terrifying and exciting and all the things, but I just think it's something I've always wanted to do. And it feels, I feel quite smug about the fact that I'm doing it seven years into Parkinson's. It feels like a kind of a big old, you know, stick your finger up at Parkinson's because I think people wouldn't expect it to be something you choose to do, you know, but actually I want to do it. And, and my co-founders are incredibly supportive and, you know, they, they understand and they get it and you know, we all support each other. We've all got stuff going on in different areas of our lives. So it's not that I'm a weak link or anything. I never feel like that. So it's, um, and I'm kind of using all the connections and knowledge that I've learned over the years. So it's being an entrepreneur is fantastic because literally you get to pull on all the elements of your life that you've learned stuff. You know, you're using your creativity, your problem solving skills, your financial knowledge, which I don't have a lot of, but <laughs> you know, you're trying to kind of business knowledge. It's really, really fascinating, but quite terrifying. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's jump into that a bit more. So can you just give us a bit, and for those who might not know, a bit of a, a, an overview of what More Human um, does specifically? So, Well, until very recently, we weren't really sure ourselves. We kind of, we, we knew what we wanted to achieve, I think. We knew what we kind of, we came together as a group on this business builder program called Zinc. And the mission was to try and help elder, older people in later life to kind of have a better sort of five years at the end of, of their life sort of thing. So to kind of make people more active and, and have better connections and things like that and we've kind of came together over social isolation and loneliness as something we wanted to try and do something about and we realized really early on that actually the best way of doing that was instead of us kind of reaching out and trying to be the glory hunters and fix people and solve this it was actually to go through people that were already doing this and just supercharge them so we found that community leaders so people that are out there already helping communities to come together were the perfect people to do that they're already perfectly placed um, within communities to do it and actually how can we help them to be better at what they do and how we can help them be more sustainable so um, it took us a while to kind of get to where we thought that was going to be most effective and actually COVID helped us so we oh, yeah. through, the, through the kind of first few weeks of COVID we set up an online Zoom kind of cafe where people could drop in and we could work with community leaders to help them support their communities and, and meet online and we just we had I think like 1,200 people come through in the space of a couple of months just coming to these regular events and we thought well actually there's something in this there's something in bringing people together so we've basically now created a uh, an online platform which is kind of mainly run through email so it's nice and easy for anyone to use really we found that most people are quite comfortable using email um, and it's kind of minimal clicks so you don't really have to click around it's really simple it's all kind of branded to the community and things like that so it's you know not scary for people it's got step-by-step -step guides it's really simple to use but it's bringing money into communities through events and also linking up practitioners so events providers people like yoga teachers people like that who've actually really been hit hard by covid and aren't kind of getting the money they need anymore for their careers linking them up with communities so there'll be great things for people to do in, in villages and towns that they haven't had the opportunity to do before they're bringing money into the community to make it more sustainable and, and helping people who are practitioners as well so it's really exciting we're kind of getting quite a lot of interest in it at the moment very early stages but um it's great fun <laughs> We often ask, well, we ask every um, every innovator on the podcast what their innovation uh, inspiration was. So what sort of prompted you, obviously, you've had plenty of stuff going on, you've been doing plenty of different things work-wise. What sort of prompted you to want to jump into, into you know, entrepreneurship and then specifically uh, more human? I think probably the biggest thing was actually kind of sometimes it's I find like anger or kind of frustration at things. And I just, I kind of noticed that there was all these people out there that were just not, not didn't have friends were kind of on their own during covid and actually struggling and 
that people were trying, you know, these, these community leaders, they've got no money coming in. They've, they're kind of stretched to, to breaking point with the work they're trying to do. And no one cares about them because it's not a sexy thing to design for. So actually, communities are not, it's not, you know, it's not the kind of the Uber or the, you know, it's not the kind of sexy company that anyone wants to build, but actually it's incredibly important to society. So I think actually kind of a bit of anger and a bit of kind of fire in my belly about the fact that this wasn't good enough and that it, something needed to be done about it. Um, was the thing that kind of made me realize it needed to be me to do it so um but i think probably a, a culmination of all the things i've learned over the years kind of came together to make me realize that actually i was probably the best person with my co-founders to try and do something about it yeah i think that's great i mean like um everybody's got a different view on this but i often think the best entrepreneurs are the ones who who fall into it because essentially they see a problem and have a solution um rather than sort of you know mm. seeking to be an entrepreneur and then finding finding something to entrepreneur yes exactly (laughs) totally agree yeah and i think the the interesting thing was i kind of joined the program the zinc program so my plan was to try and fix the digital divide so the fact that Mm -hmm. older people sometimes don't have access to technology because through the work i've been doing for parkinson's uk it was all around um kind of getting people using apps and devices but actually i realized that i kind of felt like i'd kind of made more of a digital divide by showing people these apps and actually some of them didn't have phones so i kind of went on the program to try and fix that and ended up coming out social isolation and loneliness focus but i think i just realized that loneliness is something that underpins so many health conditions it underpins financial problems it underpins everything everything we're learning about everyone we were talking to loneliness was just there as an underpinning thing all the time and so Mm. kind of seemed like the obvious choice to try and solve it as much as possible (laughs) yeah i think it's uh, i think a you know a very a super important one particularly you know coronavirus exacerbating a lot of a lot of that for for people um literally locked inside uh and, and what about the inspiration for the name? Where did more human... It was actually sort of written on a post-it note and it was a, I didn't like it at first. It was a working title and I hated it and I wanted to change it to something else. And then we just kind of, it kind of stuck and I think we realised that actually um, everything we were doing, it just felt appropriate for because we are really kind of human-centred in our design process and everything we're doing. We're being very much guided, like our product has been guided by, it's not what we want to do. Actually, we tried to fight it. It wasn't something we wanted to work on initially, but we've made it something we now love. But it was what people wanted and we kind of got guided by that and in the end it took someone saying to us why are you not building that business people want that to actually make us decide to do it because we were looking for something else to do because we didn't want to do it um and i think also just the way that you know we are kind of trying to keep everything as human as possible so technology will be there technology is obviously important but it's more about kind of bringing the kind of human level of things to the surface so it's kind of humans underpinned by technology to, to make them be able to do things better um and we kind of you know everything we do we try to bring a more human approach so actually every button on our web pages and stuff has a little link next to it that says where it takes you you know it says what the next part of the process is it's all very kind of trying to make everything as easy to use as possible so it's kind of it fits really well but i tried to fight it at the beginning because i thought it was a silly name <laughs> <laughs> from from what i've heard uh, you should always be wary of work in progress names. Yeah, they stick. That, um, you think you hate, but they'll, you just, you'll change them later, and then they stick. Yeah, yeah that could be worse. Um, I wanted to call a company Covey, which would not have been good with the COVID stuff, so it's a good job that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you're probably quite glad you picked a different post yeah, for this yeah. one. <laughs> um, uh, I really like this idea that, you know, you were sort of almost uh, against your will guided to do uh, you know to build more human because this is what the people wanted and this idea that you know like engaging with them just pointed you 
um, or you know, they pointed you in the direction of where to go in terms of what people needed and building then a really good solution to a problem that, you know, is super widespread. Um, and I just was keen to hear your thoughts, I guess, on like how you found that process and sort of, you know, the, the whole user, um, I guess, led element of innovation that you went through? It's quite difficult, I think, because as someone that's creative, you always want to have, you want to have the idea yourself. You want to be the one that leads the idea. You often have ideas and you get quite attached to them. I know, I know kind of the rest of my team are kind of similar. We, we fall for something. We kind of talk ourselves into it and we think that's the solution. And I guess everything I've always done, because I've been kind of indicative of the user, because, you know, working for Parkinson's UK and things like that, I've always been the kind of the user I've always felt like I have the best insight and actually I realized in this in this situation I don't have the best insight the users have the best insight I'm just the person kind of the conduit to make them real and I think that was really difficult it took me a long time to realize that actually I was fighting the things that people wanted with with ideas that I'd had and actually they were just literally everything we were testing was just coming back as we weren't we weren't getting a read on it we weren't getting anyone more than one person liking things and then we did what they wanted and, and realized that actually that's what was needed and, and it's it really did take a conversation with someone kind of pulling us up by our bootstraps saying come on guys why are you not doing this idea it's actually what people want to, to make us realize that because we just thought it was something we were doing during covid we just thought we're holding events for people during covid we'll stop that and do something else when, it, when it's over you know we're just helping people now so we've never seen it as a business and actually when we did think about it as a business we realized Actually, there's a lot of people this would be useful for, and, and actually we love it now. So, um, But yeah, it took a long time for me to get to grips with the fact that actually I wasn't in control of it as an idea at all. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's great, and it's a really important part of, you know, in terms of particularly for large, um, not that you guys are this, but like for large entrenched incumbent organisations and, and people, you know, organisations that are in sort of, you know, positions of power or have been successful i think there is this there's this danger that they think great we do know how this works we'll now just do the next thing um and really just ensuring that they actually speak to users and figure yeah, out you know what right, is relevant at the right times as well because often people kind of bring users in later to test and that's almost too late you need yeah. to kind of bring people in from the beginning and i think it's and kind of consistently throughout and i think we've tried to do that and also we we kind of we try to use our knowledge to synthesize what other people say so it's it's a case of, you know, we've got we've got knowledge and we've got backgrounds that we can draw into it, but actually we just use that to synthesise what other people are telling us rather than using it to impose. Yeah, I think that's a great way of framing it because I think the same thing happens, you know, particularly with disabled led innovation or innovation about issues that, you know, disabled people um, face. There's often a lot of, this will be your solution, this will work for you. Then they consult with a couple of people sort of at the end of the process and that person you know, doesn't have much input or much integration to the process and it's it's often just a poorer quality, you know, uh, innovation. So I think definitely that that synthesizing the inputs is like a really good way to conceptualize, I think, your role in that sort of process. That's awesome. Um, I'd be keen to, to hear, I guess, like, uh, you know, how um, your experience as a disabled person uh, in the creative space um, has helped you, you know, to build something for more human that's both like user friendly and looks good but is accessible and you know is, is available to everybody because I think that point you mentioned at the start where it was like typically you sort of you know we're thinking on the dichotomy of like it's accessible or it's it's cool you know or it's creative or it's nice yeah. design but not both um is a really yeah. common sort of is a really common you know sort of framework that um that exists and I just wanted how you know 
how you found bridging the two and, and I presume um, put it into more human. Yeah, so the really interesting thing about that was actually, I think quite early on when I was first diagnosed and I started doing kind of speaking engagements and got into kind of technology a little bit, I went to a talk by a guy called Hector Minto, who's over at Microsoft. And he, I remember him vividly, I told him this the other day and you can't believe I can remember it, but I vividly remember him saying that everyone at some point is has some sort of challenge or disability in the sense that it might not be a physical disability. It might be that you're holding your child with one arm and actually you only have one arm left to do the task that you're supposed to be doing. And actually, if you design for the lowest common denominator, I don't like using that term, but if you design for the person that's got the, you know, the, the kind of, I guess, the most amount of needs, then it's going to work for everyone. And I think I realized that quite early on that actually, if you design for design for that then it's going to it's if you need to make it look good though so that people want it and i think i remember when the watch was made for me i remember the, the vibrating device into my wrist i remember just being so happy that it looks nice as well that actually she considered that because i think everything seems to have that kind of nhs beige plastic look to it when they create kind of inclusive devices and I, it kind of really upsets me because things you know we've got eyes we can still look and we do still want things to look nice and i think um that's the biggest thing for me that actually if you if you do design for for that but you also design it to look good then it's going to work for everyone and, and the minute i realized that that was really important yeah i think that's awesome i think this point about like you know disabled people aren't just disabled like entirely yeah. their whole personalities aren't just disability and like exactly, you yeah. have a disability but you still like nice things and you still want to yeah. look cool and you, <laughs> those things are just you want your friends here. to be envious of those things like if you've got yeah. a cool bit of tech you want them to be like wow what the hell is that i want of those <laughs> yeah yeah, I think that's so true. Um, and like, I really liked your point about, you know, just always bringing your whole self to things and just people need to remember, I think that um, mm. disabled people have a whole self uh, that, that's there. You often, I, don't, I don't know what you find, whether this is kind of something you've experienced, but I find I almost have to kind of sort of almost up my personality sometimes in certain situations, almost just to get mm. over the disability. And it's like, yeah. I think you often find it with people, They I've spoken to people who've kind of had the same where they've almost had to kind of, increase their and it's it's hard then for people that are shy or you know yeah, maybe sure. a bit more kind of not comfortable doing that because actually you can really lose yourself and, and mm -hmm. in social situations you have to you know really work a lot harder it's much more exhausting to be a disabled person at a social event than it is you know to be a person without a disability because you're kind of sort of fighting a little bit to get yourself across and to be more than your disability i think a lot of the time i think that's that's so true i think that's really insightful and i think in a similar sense like you know the point you made earlier about like your vulnerabilities are on show at least you know for, for non-invisible disabilities and therefore and, and now you're kind of comfortable with that but i found at least i'm not sure about you but at least early on you know being in a wheelchair uh being a wheelchair user is, is obviously very um noticeable but also it's like a stereotypical archetypal disability so um so I used to really struggle with this idea that, you know, everybody was thinking something about me um, and, you know, like against essentially my will or like any, I had no control over that. Um, and, you know, I couldn't go and talk to everybody to kind of mitigate that, you know, because they just see me far away. And, you know, this point about like having to over personality in order to kind of like undo the, the first you know, first impression that your, your disability gives um, was a huge thing when I, particularly when I, you know, first had the injury, my injury. Um, and I definitely remember it just being like overwhelming at points. And you, I used to think, you know, this is too much and like, screw this, like, why am I? And so you often then don't want to go out. I imagine, you know, and I'm a fairly kind of uh, outgoing person for people who are more introverted. It's, I can imagine it's only much more um, draining. Yeah. 
definitely I've got like two points on that. I mean, the first one being that I totally agree. And I think suddenly when I, I remember writing a poem or something about it, I think when I first got diagnosed about the fact that actually suddenly strangers become the people that you care about more what they think than your friends because actually they didn't know you before and they didn't you know maybe they didn't sort of they make a judgment and and you can't say anything to them about it and it's so true they're far away and, and I suddenly became very much more aware of what people thought of me that didn't know me and that was kind of that's hard because you can't control that and the second point being that I think um I forgot my second point <laughs> Yeah. It was a good one as well. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it comes back. But I think, and I think is uh, one point that um, I think is sort of not really considered, but like, I think you have to over-energize and over-personality, like you said, but also you have to be super resilient because I think all these like microaggressions you mentioned, right? Like if people just looking or like somebody says, don't, don't stare or they kind of whisper something and to not let them, those little things kind of get to you, you have to just be super, like you have to be super confident, self-confident to just shield yourself against them. And yeah. that's tiring. That's really tiring. I remember my second point, he reminded me. Um, so I think the, the difficult thing is we were saying about kind of using a wheelchair and, and actually I found um, Parkinson's, no one ever used to kind of help me with anything. I mean, people would ask me whether I needed help if they were friends or something, but people didn't really know what was going on with me because, it, you know, they'd look at me and I'd be shaky and they'd think, oh, she's on drugs or, you know, what's going on. Whereas the minute I have a neck brace on, people kind of feel like they know how to treat me, like they know what to do. So it's almost like wheelchairs, walking sticks, walking frames, neck braces. They're kind of a known entity and like they feel like they know who you are and what you've got going on and they will try and help you, which is nice because you get help. But the amount of times I get crossed across roads that I don't want to go across, like all sorts of things, because actually people, people, are, they don't find them intimidating as much as not knowing why you're shaking. And I think having that kind of visual cue, I feel really sorry for anyone that actually, I mean, I don't feel sorry for them, that's, that's a bad thing to say, but actually I, I kind of do feel sorry for people that have invisible disabilities, because actually, how do you even try and do that every day, just kind of, you know, get the help you need or I mean you've just seen things like mental health I mean explaining to someone that you can't come into work because you're having an awful day where you literally can't get out of bed I mean just things like that are just impossible really definitely I think that like extra burden that you know is placed on people to justify themselves you know whether it's because they need an accommodation or they need help or things like that um, and often this kind of perception that like if the person if the, if it's not externally you know visible or you can't discern it by looking at you then like is it true? Like there isn't this benefit of the doubt that like, well, the fact that that person's telling you this is probably a good enough indication that they, you know, <laughs> aren't making it up. I mean, I've been yelled at um, for when I was, you know, would park a car in a disabled spot. Um, I've been yelled at before I got out of the car for parking in a, in a, in a disabled spot, um, presumably because they, I don't know, thought I didn't look disabled <laughs> from like my face upwards. But, um, you know, it's one of these things where it's, yeah. So I think this is this whole point about like just getting people to ask and break down these barriers and actually talk about this stuff rather than sort of fill in the blanks with, you know, the the symbols that they see on the parking signs or, you know, the kind of two disabled people that they've ever, you know, seen on the television or things like that. Like actually normalising this in a much more um, authentic and mainstream ways is really important for us to, to be able to, to engage like people yeah. with each other. I think I find, it, I find it incredibly satisfying when people under like misjudge me and they kind of underestimate what I can do because I, I take great delight, not in a horrible way. But if someone says to me, like a taxi driver will pick me up and say, oh, you know, do you live with your parents or are you going to hospital or something like that? And I'll say, actually, I'm going to my, going to my job. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm building a business. 
um, or um, I live by myself. You know, actually, those things really shock people. The fact that I'm not married and have been cared for, you know, and just the fact that I'm not living with my parents and I'm, I'm building a business. I think I quite enjoy saying those things. It kind of, I remember going on, I went to see some friends in Wales and I went on a steam train journey. And the guy that was driving the steam train when I got on the miniature railway basically said that he wasn't going to take me because of my neck. And I said, I commute into London every day. I'm an entrepreneur. I do this, this, and this. And he kind of looked a bit kind of taken aback because I basically threw my CV at him because I was like, no, this is not the scariest thing I've done all the year. This is a miniature yeah. train. I think I can handle this. Yeah. I just got off a real size train and I'll be yeah, fine on the bank. I think I'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think particularly the point about like making that seem normal, not an exception, because I think a lot of people. I'd be like, oh, cool, but well, no, Emma's special, and you know, everybody else is is the what I you know what I presume to be right is what everybody else does, and just like starting to realize or starting to make clear that actually when we support you know people and give them the things that they need and empower them, then the norms would be much different, and we wouldn't be expecting you know the the steam engine train to to be a huge barrier to you know <laughs> to the disabled population, um, which I'm sure it's not. Um, awesome, Emma. I, this has been, you know, this is super interesting just to hear your thoughts on so many different things. Um, I'd be keen to hear, I guess, some of the, you know, some of the, the barriers that you might have faced starting a business as a disabled person um, and some of the kind of potentially stereotypes or misconceptions, you know, um, that, that have come up. We've spoken about them a little bit just in general life, but I was wondering in the kind of business context specifically. And then um, after that, I'd be keen to hear just like how you've persevered or some of the, you know, solutions you found or the support networks you tapped into. But yeah, what are some of the barriers that have uh, kind of popped up? I think barrier-wise, to start with, there's your own kind of thoughts about what you can and can't do. I think, you know, you kind of, I definitely had a couple of sleepless nights when I was choosing whether to apply for the programme. I kind of was thinking, well, do I want to do this? You know, seven years into Parkinson's, I've got a steady job, you know, what, it's quite hard to get a steady job sometimes as a disabled person. And actually, you know, I, I loved my job at the time and I thought, is this the right thing to do? And I had to kind of, that was probably the biggest barrier to get over with my own self kind of assessment of whether I could do it. Um, financial things, I think, are always a bit of a challenge. You know, actually, we, we do obviously have to pay for a lot more things. Sometimes we have to, have to pay for a lot more taxis and things like that to get around because actually it's a bit more challenging to take public transport. But, you know, obviously I've kind of utilised the things that are available to me. I'm speaking to someone about access to work. I'm, I've kind of sorted my pip out and things like that. So actually, as much as I possibly can, I'm taking advantage of things. And it took me, I had to kind of almost admit to myself that I was disabled to be able to get those things because it, it, I didn't claim for long, I didn't claim PIP for quite a long time because I didn't see myself as disabled. Probably only the last year or so that I've actually been claiming. So things like that, I kind of, I had to kind of get around that. And logistical things like going to meetings, going to a pitch, actually, you know, the amount of times I've almost missed a pitch because my foot starts cramping or something. But then, you know, if you have awesome co-founders that understand it and you work with businesses that understand that sort of thing, kind of makes you maybe a bit more discerning about who you work with which is no bad thing you know you only choose people that understand you and get you then you're not going to be pushing yourself in stupid ways to do things that you can't do um and i think also just maybe kind of using your time in the way that works best for you so i maybe work a little later into the evening because i'm not so great in the morning um and just trying to find your kind of flexible not trying to kind of shoehorn yourself into a structure if you're a kind of an entrepreneur or a freelancer it's easier to do but actually most workplaces are fairly flexible nowadays anyway so especially with covid i think it's hard to introduce kind of a level of flexibility that maybe most companies didn't want to add but you know it's only for the benefit of people now i think so. yeah definitely i mean i think that's a huge point um that last point particularly around like 
COVID has definitely fast-tracked a lot of the kind of accommodations that disabled people have been asking for for a while, and it's fast-tracked them at a mainstream level. Yeah, and, um, you know, in the future now, um, you know, maybe pitches they might eventually have back in person, but, like, if you ever now ask for a remote meeting instead of in person, no one is ever going to be able to say, like, no, it has to be in person, like, for, for you know, for months, if not years. Um, we were forced to do this. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, um, you spoke a little bit about the solutions, which is, which is I think, also really helpful to lots of people. What's um, What I guess is the, like, uh, we, we're sort of going to shift into the final part of the conversation now, but um, if we can take you back to, you know, when you're starting this journey, and so let's um, let's think back to that time. I was wondering what you might say to, a, you know, an Emma 2.0 um, who's starting their journey now um, and in a similar sense concerned about some of the things that you worried about or wasn't really sure or, you know, kind of had some of these, you know, self, self-doubts self as well. What's something you'd say to them now, um, you know, being much further along as you are? I would say probably um, relax and actually don't stress about it. Everything's going to come right that's going to come right. You know, just go with your gut. I'd say go with my gut because I've always gone with my gut and it's it's always told me the right thing to do eventually. And sometimes it takes a little while to get there. If you ignore your gut, you'll always end up getting around to what your gut thought anyway. And you kind of feel annoyed with yourself if you didn't listen to it. Um, so I think just, I'd say to myself, just don't fret about stuff. Don't get stressed about it. You know, I, I think I'm a lot more chilled about stuff nowadays because I just what's going to happen is going to happen just deal with it when it happens and um i think uh you know kind of just i think as i was kind of saying to my mom earlier i don't think i'd actually do anything different if i ever kind of i i was kind of waiting to hear if i had a diagnosis of something a bit scarier than parkinson's i found out this morning that i haven't got it which is great news but actually i was kind of thinking about it for a while thinking you know if my time on earth was limited would i have done anything different and i actually don't think i would have done i actually can put my hand on my heart and say actually i think i'd continue to do everything the way that i'm doing it now even if i only had like two more years to live i'd still carry on as i'm going so that's quite something that i feel quite kind of proud to say and i think um i'd probably just say to myself just you know keep going you're on the right track you'll be all right and actually just stop worrying yeah. about it all. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm sure i'm sure emma 2.0 appreciates that um and in a in a similar sense, uh, one of the other questions we ask everybody is like, what is their innovation imagination? So, um, you know, it's 2020 now. Emma, where do you hope to see more human in 2030? What's the kind of the the vision and, and the, your imagination there? How far do you think you can go? I mean, we'd love it to be sort of the platform that everyone's using to kind of, to, you know, everyone's on it. You have multiple communities on there. You might have somewhere where you live as your community. You might have somewhere that you have friends that are kind of similar likes to you that actually it's this place that kind of using really interesting technologies to help people make the best connections they can possibly make. So, um, you know, using kind of things like AI and machine learning to see, you know, how to pair people up to make sure people have the best experience to kind of a bit puppet mastery but it's it's really interesting kind of stuff around behavioral science and things like that so really just making sure that communities are functioning in the best way they can you know economy wise um social wise and just trying to fill, fill up people's social circles to the point that they're actually living the best life they can live really i think it would be the ultimate goal big vision but That's right. <laughs> yeah. why not eh? i think you've got to think big so you obviously are uh are building a social impact company a social you know focused a purpose focused company um i just began to hear thoughts on you know how working in the um impact space 
um, and I'm not sure if more humans are for-profit or a non-profit, but um, how it's working, yeah. So how working in the impact space with a for-profit company, um, you know, what that's like and some of the kind of, you know, um, the good and the bad elements of that because I think there's definitely a lot of sort of, you know, stereotypes associated with impact work and non-profits and charities and, and what things should be. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's a difficult space to be in because actually everyone thinks you should be doing it for free or for, for the goodness, but actually we've become, think kind of very carefully kind of worded it, but when we kind of joined the program, they, they sort of said to us, well, actually, if you're building an impact company, the sustainability is the most important thing. And actually that only comes about from financial sustainability to actually be able to keep a something, you know, to know that something's going to grow and get better, you actually need to bring funds in to do that. And actually, why can that not be a commercial business? You shouldn't be ashamed of creating a commercial business that does good. So actually, we kind of, we, that was kind of instilled in us from the start that actually, it's not something to be ashamed of, and actually, you, you can do it. And so I think but the, the only challenge is then, when you come to get funding, so at the moment, we're about to kind of start a funding round, actually, trying to convince investors that it's a, it's a commercial space rather than a social it's a social space but actually that it's this commercial benefit in it and actually there is money to be made is really difficult so it's kind of both sides don't really believe you yeah i think that's so true <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a bit of a challenge <laughs> i think and i think you put it really well then of like we shouldn't be ashamed of like you know building a company that does good um and i think that that's definitely one of the things that you know uh, I found in the space that like if I said to somebody I'm going to go to you know the middle of Amazon and you know mine for oil and extract things and destroy stuff and etc I'm going to make a ton of money doing it they'd be like cool that makes sense and if I said great I'm going to build a company that empowers you know communities or disabled people and I'm going to make some money off it they'd say like why are you you know exploiting exploiting those people or trying to profit um, which I think is bonkers and I think the more we kind of just discuss how ridiculous it is that we're ashamed of doing good in sustainable and you know productive ways then hopefully we start to change that so that like you said funding can flow into these areas and we can start to properly you know get innovation there where they, yeah, they should be because innovation does cost money from somewhere whether it comes from grants or funding or whether it comes through kind of more commercial it's, you know it's, it costs because it's people's time and it's technology and things like that and those things aren't cheap to do them properly you need the investment to do it so. no i entirely agree and i think that's a really good point to leave people with um we'll leave it there um but thank you so much for your time it's been so awesome to chat and really excited to see where more human goes thank you that's really nice chatting to you thanks for listening to the inclusive innovators podcast next week we're joined by cameron malik ceo of disability rights uk this one's a special one as we're celebrating global disability awareness day do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community? To find out more, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise 2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners, including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capsule Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexor, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.